Our question for this morning is, what is church? And to begin to answer that, um, I, and, and to, to try and involve the kids some this morning, kids, um, would you stand up with me for just a minute, just the kids? And um, I think that you all are probably, I, I promise I'm not going to embarrass you too much, but um, I think that uh, most of our kids here, I bet, are familiar with the little nursery rhyme about the church. Kids, does this look familiar to you? If you know this nursery rhyme, would you say it with me here? You remember? This is the church. This is the what? Steeple. Open the doors and what? See all the people, right? You've heard that one? Kids, that is a lie. That nursery rhyme is a lie. I'm going to try and debunk and, and make you question everything you've ever been taught in kids' ministry this morning. Don't even get me started on the theology of this little light of mine. But kids, let me give you a more ecclesiologically accurate version of that nursery rhyme. It would go like this. This ain't the church. This is just the steeple. But open the doors. The church is the people. The church is the people. You got that, kids? I know ain't and whatever, but uh, that's, that's a more ecclesiological, accurate version of the nursery rhyme. And thank you all for playing along, kids. You can have a seat. Thank you. See, if this was the church, then we couldn't call what we're doing here this morning church, right? We would have to call this taking a break from church to go meet in the park instead. And our banner isn't long enough for that. And so fortunately, as we're going to see in God's word this morning, in the Gospel of Matthew, the church really is the people. That's who the church is. And so there are lots of great passages in the Bible that we could turn to on the church, but Jesus invented the church, and so it only makes sense to me that if we want to answer what and who the church is, we've got to look to him for our answer. So uh, I don't know if you're aware, Jesus only talked about the church two times, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two times explicitly, Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. And so that's where we're going to camp out this morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one of those. And I'm going to go ahead and invite Oakley and Josh to come on up. They uh, graciously volunteer to read scripture for us this morning. Um, as I said, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some of those at the info bar uh, for adults. Kids, we, we give you a, a Bible as sort of a rite of passage in the kindergarten. If you've snuck in post-kindergarten to West Hills and you don't have a good kid's Bible, let us know. Miss Allie would love to get you one of those. As I said, Matthew 16, 13 through 19, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 18 and read verses 15 through 20 as well if you want to follow along. So Oakley... Can you uh, read first for us uh, from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19? Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed you are, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bend on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Josh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound to you in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching the interpretation, application of your word, just as you blessed its writing thousands of years ago. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would be amongst us. Jesus, as you promised, where two or three are gathered, you're here with us. We thank you for your presence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus teaches us in these two passages seven important things about his church, seven observations to be made here about the church. And with each, I want to offer you an interpretation of what Jesus is saying, and then I would like to leave you with an application. How ought we to apply this in our lives? By the way, that is how you want to read your Bible, whenever you do it at home, on your own, three steps. Observation, what is this passage saying? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, how should I respond? So, observation number one, what is the church? The church, number one, is an assembly gathered around Jesus' kingship. We are an assembly of people gathered around Jesus' kingship. The word for church, ecclesia, in Greek, simply means assembly or gathering. At the most basic level, that is what the church is. Not a building. It's not an institution. It's not an experience. I've told you, I've become convinced over these past 14 months that church cannot be virtual because church isn't something you do. Like, oh shoot, we slept in, we missed church, we'll just do it later tonight when the kids are in bed. You might watch the sermon later that night, but you won't be doing church because church isn't something that you do. Church is something you are. Church is someone you're with. This, what we are right now, this, God's people assembled around Jesus' kingship, this is church. It's a beautiful thing. With COVID restrictions easing, I suspect you may be participating now in various assemblies throughout your week. You assemble around different causes. You assemble as a family who share the same DNA. Or, if you're like my family, at least you share the same last name. You assemble as a staff for staff meetings who share the company's mission and vision. You assemble as fans who share a common love for Cardinals baseball or Blues hockey. But when we assemble... As the church, the common bond that we share here is the conviction that Jesus is our king. 
to confess Jesus as king is to affirm two very important things about him, the, the two monumental statements that Peter first made about Jesus here in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ. Kids, did you know that Christ was not Jesus' last name? It's a title that the Bible uses for him starting way back in the Old Testament uh, when Jesus was, was, had only been prophesied thousands of years before he was even born, God had told his people Israel, he said that he would send them a Messiah, Mashiach, as the Hebrew word from which we get the Greek word Christos, Christ. God promised that one day he would send the Messiah to rescue his people. But the Jews of Jesus' day expected a savior like King David, a warrior king who would rescue them from Roman occupation and oppression. They didn't realize that Jesus had come actually to save them from a far greater enemy, from sin, from hell, from death. And when he did, Jesus did it because he was and is the son of the living God. Secondly, in other words, Jesus is Lord. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just a good teacher, not just one way to understand God. Jesus is the very son of God. No one comes to the Father but through him. He said in John 3, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. And so the church is the assembly of all those who confess Jesus as king, meaning as savior and Lord. It's not enough to simply confess him as savior only. Like Jesus died for my sins, so now I get to go to heaven and live however I want between now and then. And it's not enough to confess him as Lord. I believe that Jesus is God, so I'm just going to try my very hardest to live for him and please him. No, he's got to be both your Lord and savior. Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner And the only way I can be forgiven is by your perfect sacrifice for me on the cross as my Savior. And because of what you've done for me now in response, I willingly want to lay down my life to follow you wherever you would lead me because I trust you as my Lord. That's the gospel, the good news. All who do that, repent and believe in Jesus And you will be saved, the Bible says. Acts 20, 28 says you'll be included in the church as well. Acts 20, 28 identifies the church as those whom Jesus has purchased with his own blood. Jesus' blood can now cover all your sins, past, present, and future, if you will simply repent of your sins and trust in him for forgiveness. So that's application point number one. Most important this morning, if you hear nothing else, if you hear nothing about the church and all the celebration we have of the church this morning together, hear this. Please receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. If you have not done that, kids, you're with us this morning. Maybe some of you have been spectating passively, uh, attending a building, a program for many years, but you're not actually part of the church yet because Jesus hasn't purchased you. His blood has not been applied to your sins yet. Why wait? That is the best decision you will ever make. Repent and trust in Jesus this morning, and you will be saved. Your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Don't, don't, don't wait. Number two, the church is all those who are blessed and called by God. Jesus replies to Peter's confession, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
Uh, we're in the middle of the book of Genesis right now as a church, and uh, way back in chapter 12, God had blessed Abram and promised him that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament clarifies that blessing and explains that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise of blessing. In other words, all those who have trusted in Jesus, now inherit God's promise of blessing. Paul says he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not with wealth and health and happiness. Jesus has promised us so much better and more than that, eternal life, eternal riches, eternal joy in the heavenly places where moths and rust can't destroy and touch it, where COVID in a bad stock market quarter can't touch it, We have hope for the life to come, a hope that can't be shaken, amen? But just remember, it's not because of anything that you have done. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, not because you're so much smarter than all the other disciples. You can go back and read the Gospels. Peter may have been the thickest one of them all. He says, no, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't work this out on your own, Peter. It was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, it is only because you were called by God the Father. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages even began. Why, why does Paul call us, or why does Paul say that God calls us before he even created the world? It's so that God can ensure that we can't take any of the credit. Our salvation has nothing to do with our good works. So here's your application point for number two. Pray for someone this morning in your life who has not yet been called by God the Father. Everyone here, I I I, I would be willing to wager everyone here knows someone who is not saved. Pray for that person this morning. Regularly pray for them because you cannot change their heart. Only God can. But what you can do is ask God to do it. That is what God has given you to do. Pray that God would draw that person, would call that person to himself so he can save them. But also recognize lest we be too passive, number three, that the church is Christ-appointed buttress of truth and his plan for redemption. The church is Christ-appointed buttress of truth and plan for redemption. Who or what is the rock that Jesus builds his church on here in verse 18? There's three historical possible interpretations. Number one, the rock is Peter. That's the Roman Catholic interpretation. Peter was the first pope. Jesus built the church on Peter and the papacy. Number two, the rock is Peter's confession. That has been the leading Protestant interpretation for many centuries. The church was built not on Peter as the man, but on his declaration of faith. Martin Luther said, we are all Peters to the extent that we confess Jesus as the Christ. But personally, I, by the third interpretation, the third interpretation that the rock is Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than Jesus Christ. To me, that's, that's a pretty open and shut case. He's the only foundation. 
But if we look back at this passage itself, Jesus is using a play on words here to give Simon a new name. Simon gets renamed Peter, Petros. It means stone. But then Jesus says on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petra refers to a foundation stone. It's it's related to Petros, but it's different. It's bigger. It's better. Peter is Petros. Jesus is Petra. And Jesus says, everyone who hears my words, not Peter's, mine, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the Petra. Jesus calls himself, Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected who has become the chief cornerstone. Peter himself, later in his letters, will point us to Christ as our cornerstone and add that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Peter didn't say, I'm the living stone, build on me. He said, all who come to Christ, he's the cornerstone, build on him. We're going to come back to us, the church, being living stones in our last point at the end. But if Christ is our foundation, then the church is his appointed buttress for the truth. B-U-T-T-R-E-S-S. A buttress, that's, that's a, a, a buttress is any external prop or support built to steady a structure by opposing its outward thrust. Uh, we recently built Ellery, a zipline tower, in our backyard, and despite using four-by-fours buried in two feet of concrete, the tower still shakes a good bit when she you know, hits the end of the zipline. And so we considered building some buttresses to keep the tower from pulling so much with the force of the zipline. A buttress gives support. That is Scripture's metaphor for the church, 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, straight out of Scripture. Christ is all the foundation that we need. He's our foundation, and yet Christ has appointed the church to preach his word and to point people to him as their cornerstone so we serve as a support, a buttress. But notice in verse 18 here, we're not just the support of buttress, standing for truth in a world that's sinking deeper and deeper into relativism every day. Jesus actually calls us to go on the offensive for his kingdom. This is why we do things like church in the park or out in our communities and our neighborhoods. Because Jesus has promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Gates are defensive measures, right? Satan is on the defense. Satan knows how the story ends. He knows he's been given dominion only for a time. He knows his time is coming. And so Satan is just trying to hold ground. But Jesus says he won't. He can't. He says his gates don't stand a chance against my church. Brothers and sisters, we are The church is God's plan A for the redemption of this world, and God doesn't have a plan B. God uses us to eternally rescue people, broken sinners. Jesus promised that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Think about that for a minute. Like, wait a minute, Jesus healed diseases. Jesus raised people from the dead. Any of y'all done that lately? I haven't either. But listen, he says, you're going to do greater works than that? Yes, because Lazarus died again, and he stayed dead the second time. But when you and I share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, and we pray for them, and God uses us to call that person to saving faith in him, then we get to play an integral part in others being raised to new life forever, eternal life. 
That is the privilege that Jesus has left his church with, being co-redeemers with him in his plan of salvation for the world. And so your application for number three is to do it. Just do it. Do what you say that you're going to do at the end of every Sunday morning at West Hills. Go and make disciples. Let's do it for God's glory and the building of his church. Number four, the church is the mouthpiece of God. We're the mouthpiece of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. In the New Testament, God spoke through the apostles. Today, God speaks through the church insofar as we accurately reflect God's revealed word in Scripture. We are God's spokespeople. Does anybody else feel the weight of that this morning? In chapter 16, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 18, Jesus broadens that to include all the disciples. He says, whatever y'all collectively bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What in the world does that mean? Very quickly, John MacArthur explains, the church has authority to declare that sins are either forgiven or not forgiven when that declaration is based on the teaching of God's word. If a person has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the church can tell him with perfect confidence that his sins are loosed, that is, forgiven. If, on the other hand, a person refuses to receive Christ, the church can tell him with equal confidence that his sins are bound, that is, not forgiven. Now, only God can forgive sins. And so I cannot claim to forgive your sins. But according to Jesus, I really can pronounce your sins to have been forgiven by him. That's the better translation of verse 18 here and the future perfect passive verbs used in the Greek. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. The church cannot determine God's forgiveness. We are simply trying to discern what God has already done in a person's heart and then announce it as God's spokespeople. But I have to tell you, as a leader of this church, and this is by far the most terrifying part of my job. I will take a dozen emails, angry emails about our new COVID policies over just one iffy baptism candidate. There are a couple folks that I have baptized in my 10 plus years of ministry now that I look back and sometimes make me lose sleep because what could be worse than assuring someone that God has forgiven their sins only to discover later that their profession of faith seems to have been totally bogus and empty? Like that I have given the false assurance of heaven to someone who actually is on the road paved to hell. And so... For your application, for point number four, I would just humbly ask you, on behalf of my fellow elders as well at West Hills, for your prayers for wisdom and discernment. I know many of you have shared, you're praying for us with you know, this difficult 14-month season here, COVID, decision-making, that's great. But I'll tell you, I would rather make 100 wrong decisions about COVID than one wrong decision about who we baptize as a church, who we admit into membership as a church whose sins we loose and pronounce forgiven, having been forgiven by God. I don't want to get that decision wrong. I don't want to assure you that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life if your reservation is actually in the smoking section. And so please pray for me. Pray for your pastors, for your elders. This is no small responsibility to bind and loose, to be the mouthpiece of God. Number five, the church is a sinful reconciling family. 
We are a sinful, reconciling, spiritual family. Now we're into chapter 18, and Jesus instructs us in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Three descriptions of the church we get in that short verse. First, the church is a spiritual family. He says, if your brother sins against you, God is our father, Jesus is our elder brother, those of us who are in Christ are now adopted siblings, but siblings love to fight, don't we? Because secondly, we're sinful. Jesus has freed us from the penalty of our sin, praise God, but not the presence of all sin. And so Jesus gets really practical here. Jesus doesn't paint some vision of a bunch of perfect people all sitting around singing Kumbaya together every Sunday. No, he addresses the possibility, the inevitability, the if here uh, could just as easily be translated when in the Greek, when your brother sins against you, Jesus knows we're going to let one another down. And so in his mercy, he gives us a blueprint for how to deal with it, deal with sin in the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and vent to someone else. Go and, no, he says, go and stuff those feelings deep down. Try and convince yourself that person didn't really mean to hurt you. It says, go and be passive-aggressive until they get the point and apologize. Go and just ignore them and find a new friend in church instead. Go and just find a new church altogether. Avoid the awkwardness. No. The third mark of the church here in verse 15 is that when we are sinned against, we go to one another and we work it out. That's what family does. We seek to reconcile, to restore good relationship. I got a letter just last week from some longtime members of this church informing me that they were leaving West Hills because of things that I had said or done as a pastor. And so I immediately picked up the phone, called them, no reply. So I texted them the next day, hey, I got your letter. When can we get together and talk? So they emailed the other elders with a copy of their letter to inform them that they had received my text, but they had no interest in meeting with me to try and reconcile. So now I... We'll continue on suffering my own same, old same blind spots. That couple is guilty of sin, of disobeying, just openly rejecting Christ's clear instructions here in Matthew 18. And you all, the remaining church at West Hills, have to keep putting up with an uncorrected pastor. Everybody loses when we refuse to do things God's way. I mean, if we are really a family... This is the way things should be done, isn't it? Kids, what do you think your parents would say if you wrote them a letter to tell them you didn't approve of some of the things they'd done recently so you're going to join a new family? And by contrast, I want to thank Sally, Abby, Taylor, Rob, Steve, Thad, Andy, so many of y'all who have come to me and told me my fault. God knows there are plenty of them to point out I am chief of sinners, but I so appreciate those brothers and sisters who love me enough to do what is, I'm sure, very uncomfortable and call out their pastor's sin. It has to be hard, but it's good. It's right. And it honors the Lord and his church and your pastor. And so I thank you. You should likewise thank those in your life who love you enough to do the same. So, application this morning, examine your heart today. Is there any sin in your life that you need to repent of? Anyone that you need to ask forgiveness of? If so, go to them today, 
Don't wait. Go to them and seek to be reconciled. Number six. Number six, the church is a supportive, caring means of accountability. The church is a supporting, supportive, caring means of accountability in the believer's life. This is the, the flip side of point number five. In the same way that you will at times be the sinful one who needs reproof, at other times you will be the one who sees a brother or sister straying in need of reproof, and you will have to decide whether you care about them enough to offer them that support and accountability. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A true friend wants what is best for you, and she knows that continuing on in sin and disobedience of the Lord, that is not God's best for you. And so Jesus exhorts us, says, if your brother does not listen, and let's be honest, most of us are sinful enough, our first reaction is sometimes to get defensive, lash back, and so what do you do next? Give him a couple days to cool off, and then Jesus says, you take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector, because sometimes the most loving thing you can do for an unrepentant sinner is to excommunicate them, to put them out of the fellowship of the church. Paul orders that in 1 Corinthians 5, says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the hope and prayer is always still restoration. But again, just like loving parents, don't let their kids talk back to them and sit around eating candy all day long. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us because he loves us. And so too, we ought to love one another enough to want what's best for one another, holiness, godliness. And so I exhort you, again, to apply this in your own life. Commit yourself or recommit yourself this morning to loving others enough to confront them when need be. Maybe it's today. Some of you conflict avoiders, you may have been bottling some stuff up, You keep trying yourself, it's really not that big of a deal, but it hasn't gone away. It's eating away at you. Examine yourself first. It's Matthew 7. Take the log out of your own eye first so that, Jesus says, you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother see the speck in his eye. This is God's good design for his church, for our holiness. Lastly, number seven, the church is God's temple. We are God's temple. Jesus promises us here in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is precisely why church discipline should be so effective, because Christians can't imagine not being with in the church, this, this fellowship, this assembly, this is God's house. This is where God is. Y'all, you remember those plural pronouns from last week, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Y'all are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in y'all. Ephesians 2. Y'all are the household of God, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And then 1 Peter 2 from earlier this morning. Y'all like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to God through Christ. 
And so, brothers and sisters, if that is true, my final exhortation and application for you this morning is to recommit yourself to this assembly going forward. Listen, I know it's been a really weird, hard year for many of us, you know, 14 month stretch here. For some of you, this morning is your very first Sunday back with the assembly, the gathered church. We are so glad you're back. It is so good to have you. It's not the same without you. It's really not. We miss you when you're not here. So now it's time to get back to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, 2020, it felt like Jesus was coming back any minute, didn't it? And so what are we supposed to do as a church, even in the end times? What's our response? It's to assemble, not to neglect to meet together so that we can encourage one another. Hebrews says, you all are such an encouragement to me. This morning, Church in the Park, this, this is about celebrating the, the gift, God's good gift of the church and the encouragement, the love and good works that comes with it. Thank you for your encouragement. I hope, I pray that our corporate worship together at West Hills on Sundays is such an encouragement to you. And so let me leave you with this blessing of encouragement for the church from the rest of that great first Peter chapter two passage. He says, you are, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for Christ's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray.